This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 51. This week, forget the small talk, we're going straight to the interview with a guest many listeners will recognize from his infamous ground speed story. That's right, retired U.S. Air Force Major Brian Scholl, author of Sled Driver and numerous other books, joins us to describe what it was like to fly the highest and fastest operational aircraft ever made, and how building a spy plane with such cutting-edge technology was possible over a half century ago. That, to me, is the real story of the, the genius of this airplane, that today... As you and I are sitting here, it still holds every speed and altitude record. It isn't so much about the technology. It's about the people who had the belief and the will to make it happen. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Today, the Fighter Pilot Podcast is at the Gallery One headquarters in downtown Marysville, California, and we are joined by a distinguished gentleman who hails from Quantico, Virginia. A 1970 graduate of East Carolina University, after college, he joined the U.S. Air Force and trained as a pilot. He flew 212 close air support missions in the Vietnam conflict before being shot down towards the end of hostilities. He crash-landed his AT-28 Trojan and was severely burned in the ensuing fireball. Crawling from the wreckage, he was rescued by a special forces team and evacuated to a military hospital in Okinawa where the staff did not expect him to survive. Following two months in intensive care, he was transported to an American hospital where he underwent 15 surgeries over the ensuing year. Hospital staff told him he was lucky to be alive and that he would never fly again. Undeterred, he underwent months of physical therapy and evaluations before eventually earning a flight physical, allowing him to return to active flying duty in the Air Force. He went on to pilot the A-7D Corsair II and A-10 Thunderbolt II. Towards the end of his career, he was able to pass an astronaut-equivalent flight physical with zero waivers, enabling him to fly the SR-71 Blackbird. He retired from the Air Force after 20 years of service and over 5,000 hours of flight time. His comeback story from laying near dead in a Southeast Asia jungle to later flying the world's fastest, highest-flying air-breathing jet has been the subject of numerous magazine articles and an inspiration to many. Now an accomplished photographer and keynote speaker based in Northern California, he has appeared on the History Channel and is a recipient of the Spirit of Freedom Award. He has authored several aviation-themed books, including in-depth accounts of the U.S. Air Force, Thunderbirds, and Navy Blue Angels, having flown extensively with both. However, he may be best known for his first-hand account of piloting the Blackbird in his book, Sled Driver. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, retired U.S. Air Force Major Brian Shaw. Brian, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me here in your gallery. This is amazing. And when we're done, we'll take a few photos maybe and a quick video of what you've got going on here and and what's coming. But it's just a real honor to uh, finally uh, meet you. Well, thank you for coming, and i um, happy to do your show. Great. You know, your amazing story of tenacity, persistence, is, and grit is well publicized in print and on YouTube. 
how did spending a year on your back in the hospital, to paraphrase your own words, shape you and your outlook on life, Brian? Well, the most obvious thing it did is uh, give you a different perspective on mm-hmm. life altogether. Uh, whether you wanted it or not, you were <laughs> going to have a different perspective. When you lay on your back for a year and you're not doing all the things you normally do, uh, you come to some new realizations about what's really important in life. Um, it's really not about the money, the car, the house, the awards and medals and uh, status and rank. It's a, it's a lot about just getting out in life, doing stuff you enjoy, feeling the sun on your face, uh, being able to do for yourself. And it just it just changed your whole outlook on what was important and what you really wanted to do in life and it, it how short and tenuous life really was. Oh, yes. So it just it changed your whole outlook on so, in so many levels that uh, the thrill of actually getting out of that place mm. and not only just getting out but to be able to go back to your life and go back to things that you love doing, mm-hmm. that was a gift and uh, it's a gift you never uh, stop being thankful for the rest of your life. Oh, I can imagine. And while it comes in no way close to your experiences, for sure, you know, some amount of determination was required simply to align the two of our busy schedules. <laughs> I believe I reached out to you back in October, November, and here we finally are six months later. So, Well, I'm glad we could do it. I, I guess my schedule gets kind of busy sometimes, uh, but uh, we're, never, we're never too busy to welcome another fighter pilot to the gallery. Excellent. Well, it is an honor to be here. Now, as you know, we on the podcast are in the midst of an aircraft series, and we We've already featured some of your other principal aircraft, namely the Warthog and the Corsair, and also the T-38, although we kind of hid that one under the (laughs) F-5 as a derivative of it. Uh, So today, it's all right, we'd like to focus on the SLED, as you call the SR-71. Now, normally we begin by asking what the subject aircraft was designed to do and what it does well, but in the case of the Warthog, we jumped straight to the gun because that's, of course, <laughs> the most distinctive feature. And, and I think for the SR-71, it's probably the performance. But let's start with the variance because that kind of leads into it. And if I understand my research correctly, it all began with the A-12 ox cart. Does that sound right? That's correct. The uh, Air Force itself did not uh, support the program initially, but the CIA was very interested in having a high-altitude, high-speed uh, photo reconnaissance that was much superior to anything satellites were doing at the time. Or the U-2. Absolutely. Okay. And it could go into hot areas. So uh, the, those first uh, those first CIA guys were, were pretty brave dudes to get out there. And uh, during that whole Vietnam War, a lot of the photos that you saw of Haiphong Harbor, those were not satellite images. Those were all SR-71, highly detailed uh, photos. And they did a lot of good. And uh, so that airplane was uh, already put to use. And then, of course, they were going to cancel the program and, and change everything. And then they uh, came out with the Interceptor So that would be the YF-12, the YF-12 right? Okay. Uh, because the big threat back then was Russian bombers coming right. across the polar ice cap. Well, that technology quickly changed to ICBMs being the threat. Mm-hmm. And so the Air Force had initially made an order for 90 of those Interceptors. Can you imagine a ramp with 90 Blackbirds out there on it? Well, they canceled the order, and Kelly Johnson said, well, you know, you're going to want to keep track of those ICBMs, so why don't we uh, make the airplane a little longer, put a guy in the back seat, put sensors on it, and we'll make you a reconnaissance version. And they thought about it, and the Air Force said, hmm, give us about 35 of those. <laughs> so the airplane had a life. At every, at every turn, it was always being canceled, like, uh, too much money, I don't know if we really need that kind of thing. But from 1962 to 1990... 
this airplane did more to shape the foreign policy of this nation than you can imagine, and it uh, it did so much good uh, for the Joint Chiefs Staff, the Pentagon, the President, uh, six different presidents it mm-hmm. served. Uh, this airplane behind the scenes really was, I always say, the most remarkable jet of the 20th century. Right. And I will leverage, if I may, some of your talks that are on YouTube for the listener who hasn't maybe listened to you or been familiar. There are talks there where you go into great detail about flying for President Reagan, for example, almost literally, and some of the missions you did. And so we will assume some level of knowledge there. But getting back to the A-12, on the show, we had a whole episode on the terminology that is used as far as A in this case. I mean, was there anything attack about the A-12 or how did they come up with that? No, and I I don't know, uh, Lockheed, how they numbered or named their airplanes at the time. It it was certainly not an attack airplane. Right, uh, because it was a uh, reconnaissance aircraft. Yeah. Right. But then the Y, of course, uh, Y means prototype. So right. the YF-12 was a prototype for an interceptor. Right. And then the SR-71 came along. I think they just, uh, the, the A was just, uh, you know, first in a series uh, okay. type thing. All right. And then amongst SR-71s, was there an A, B, and I think there was one we C only model, had an right? Well, we had an A, B, and C. We only had one B model, and that one C model, they ended up using for spare parts. It didn't really, it had the extra fin and... Uh, was never really used. But the B model, they had two of them. One crashed, and that was our trainer. That was a very important aircraft because as a pilot, those first six, seven flights that you did were not with your backseater. They weren't that brave. They, mm-hmm. uh, you had to get checked out on landing and air refueling. Mm-hmm. So it had a raised cockpit in the back. It looked kind of funny. But uh, they also used that airplane to fly all the dignitaries that came out, like Chuck Yeager or, or congressmen and wow. some senators who got their Barry Goldwater, got his flight. And this helped us keep the airplane alive in Congress and everything And because the airplane was so secret, a lot of people didn't know about its capabilities and how valuable it was. So those little uh, dignitary VIP flights were very important. So the B model was a very useful airplane to have. We had one of them. It's where you did your check rides mm-hmm. and your – but mostly you got checked out when you were a student in training uh, for those first landings and um, air refuelings. It's an interesting conundrum, isn't it, to have a secretive program that is important, but if it's so secret, how do you justify it and get the funds that you need? Well, that was a big problem. Keep in mind, too, this airplane belonged to the Strategic Air Command, SAC, who totally didn't support it and didn't even like it because they said, what does it do for us? It doesn't carry bombs. It doesn't shoot missiles. Yeah, Yeah, it takes our money and our (laughs) resource, and it's sucking up a lot of our tankers. So we weren't even supported by the command. Uh, most of the people in Congress and the Pentagon didn't know of its true capabilities, which were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, that, that was one of the things that hurt the airplane near the end when, uh, when it came time to can we save this, this right. program. Right. Was there another variant called the M21 where they were trying to do some sort of D21 well, drone yes, thing? Well, yes. I mean, and there's always cats and dogs. Yeah. They, if you go to the Seattle Air and Space Museum, they say, this is our uh, our D21 here, our M21. You know, and people are very confused. They say, well, it's a Blackbird. It's an SR. Well, technically, <laughs> it was designed to carry the uh, D21 drone, which right. thankfully we never had to deal with. Uh, they had a lot of problems with it back in the early 60s uh, trying to get it to separate from the airplane at high mock and everything, and mm-hmm. it crashed one. And Kelly said, you know what? We can't afford to – these airplanes are too valuable. That's it. We'll put them on B-52s, and they right. did. So 
Technically, yeah. I, when I go to that museum every year, and I, I've been there now uh, 28 years in a row, I'm their longest-running speaker, <laughs> everyone always says, well, wait, that's not an SR. That's it. I go, okay, if you want to be technically correct, but basically, yeah, sure. no, it's a blackbird. Well, so. and on this show, when we talk through the variants, invariably, someone will always sure. comment, oh, you forgot yes. the, yeah. for example, we just had the F-16. You forgot the XFL-16 <laughs> or whatever it exactly. was with the full Delta wing or the Ford swept <laughs> wings or, you know, so there's so many. No, but. I, and yeah, there wasn't that many other. I don't think you've named just about all of them. Right. And the A12, as you stated, was a single seat, yeah. interestingly. The SR-71 ended up with the pilot and what was the... He was called an RSO, Reconnaissance Systems okay. Officer. All right. And a uh, very valuable man to have back there. Oh, I can worked imagine. all the magic stuff. And sure. uh, when I look at those uh, CIA guys flying that airplane with one seat, doing all the nav, doing everything by yourself, I, I would not... Uh, Welcome that to that challenge. That that airplane was a handful with two men in it. So, oh, I can uh, imagine, especially at that speed and altitude. I have to think that would be fairly lonely too. There's something <laughs> to be said for having yeah. a crewman with you. Yeah, it, it was the, those guys were hanging it out. Oh, I can imagine. So the SR seventy one then, which will be the cornerstone of our discussion today, was designed for, like you said, high speed reconnaissance in the era of the Gary Powers fiasco, if I may use that word. And you mentioned in your speech that I observed on YouTube that it was never intended to overfly really any, at least specifically the Soviet Union, but more along its borders. Well, it, you know, it could do so much. And if it wanted to overfly, it could. But the reality in life was that we already know what's going on in downtown Moscow. There's Mm -hmm. no big secret there. We have satellites that, but, but it's troop movements, tank movements, Missile placements uh, against borders, and especially with the the Warsaw Pact and NATO Pact countries in those days with the Cold War, that was what was more critical mm-hmm. uh, to us to want to know about. So we really didn't want to provoke uh, any more than we had to. Right. Uh, so it it was very uh, common. We would fly right up against the borders of town. You know, people always say, "Did you fly over the heart of Russia?" We didn't really need to. There right. was no. What, there's a lot of nothingness in the country of Russia <laughs> there to see. Parts of it. But uh, there's a lot of uh, interest when there's a massing of uh, armor or missile batteries mm. up against uh, West Germany right. uh, from East Germany. So those are things that we looked at uh, routinely. Plus, you can be told with your RSO to go hop in and go, whereas reprogramming a satellite can be very difficult. Not only that, we could be at the exact time of day, the right. angle the angle of camera, the shadow, and with impunity regardless of the threat. And that's the one thing this airplane gave the uh, Joint Chiefs. Uh, they loved it. They And to be honest, I hate to say it because I hate saying anything good about the Navy, but the biggest <laughs> user and and the biggest supporter of this program was the United States Navy. See, we didn't do anything for SAC. They didn't use our product, mm-hmm. but the, the CIA did, the foreign policy people did, mm-hmm. but the Navy loved that we could keep track of those nuclear submarines. And that's a lot of our missions up in the Barents uh, Sea and up by the Arctic Circle and all were strictly uh, submarine tracking. Okay. And when this air program was being canceled near the end of its life, Everybody was going like, well, yeah, I guess so. The Navy said, please do not cancel this program. The Navy was our biggest supporter because they were getting the kind of data they could never get from satellites. We could look through weather. We had this kind of sensors. Now, the airplane, I would say it was a 57 Chevy. It was a a 59 design airplane, 
But the sensors, every decade, boy, they had Star Wars technology they put on that airplane. So we had, we had cameras and sensors. I could read your name tag. But the Navy said, please don't cancel that because they are giving us the best imaging. We kept track of those, those Soviet submarines. Well, I suppose you could also make a case for they were getting it probably for free. So <laughs> if they were willing to uh, pitch in some money maybe, yeah. but anyway. Well, they weren't providing the tanker support, which yeah. was the real Achilles heel to this jet. Because it had a specific fuel it needed, JP7, correct? JP-7. JP-7, yeah. and, and for, that was because of the engines and the speed. Well, let's talk about all that. I mean, how on earth... Now, I don't mean to take anything away from previous generations, but this technology in 2019 is still mind-blowing. How it on is. earth did they come up with this 60 years ago? What should blow your mind is that in 1958, 59, 60, when they were developing this, on a slide rule, they had to invent technology to build the jet. No one had built a plane that was 85% titanium. You can't do it. It just doesn't work very well. well. They figured out a way to... They had to figure fuel, oil, and hydraulics that could withstand 800 degrees Fahrenheit. The fuel heats up to 300 degrees in flight. They had to put nitrogen doers in there to keep pressure. They had to heat the cameras in the front nose to 100 degrees and keep it at a constant temperature so that the glass was at a perfect uh, resolution for the film, uh, the camera lenses. And I mean, there were so many bits of technology that had to be invented on the spot. I give credit to the men that Kelly Johnson had around him. It wasn't an era. It wasn't about technology. It was about people. And those people were not only dedicated and brilliant, but they rolled up their sleeves and they said, we're just going to figure out a way to do it. The same way people did on Apollo 13, the mm -hmm. same way we put men on the moon. It's the same in every generation of people you talk about. There's always people who roll up their sleeves and say, we don't know how we're going to do it, but by God, we're going to do it. And Kelly Johnson, you know, used to put up signs, I'll give $50 to anyone that could come up with a solution today, you know. <laughs> and the reality is it was about the people. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, well, we had some, some super secret uh, technology. No, we didn't. We had people that, that closed the door, kept the Air Force and Congress out, mm. and said, let's figure out a way. And I, I just tip my hat to that. That, to me, is the real story of oh, the, the genius of this airplane. Me too. That it lasted that long mm. and that today, as you and I are sitting here, it still holds every speed and altitude record. It isn't so much about the technology. It's about the people mm -hmm. who had the belief and the will to make it happen. Can you touch on quickly for those who might not be aware who Kelly Johnson is? Well, Kelly Johnson was the genius uh, at Lockheed, uh, and I recommend his book, uh, More Than My Fair Share. His autobiography is, is tremendous. I'm glad he was on our side. Here's a man that every airplane came out of that Lockheed stable just looked beautiful, you know, had uh -huh. just great lines to it. But he was a really brilliant engineer who, who would not take no for an answer. And when they told him, yeah, it can't be done, Kelly. That's not how we do it. Nope, this is the technology. And then he said, you know, we're just every every generation has those people that just says, I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out a way. Right. And he did. And he had a like say a good team around him. And he had specific rules about, hey, we're we're this is how we do things here. And and we don't waste time. Right. And we don't uh, we don't take no for an answer and we just figure it out. Well he set the culture and the climate in the team there, and they exactly. got it done. But to your point, no aircraft had ever been built like the SR-71 no. prior to that. They had to not only create the technology for the aircraft, 
correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they also have to design some tools just to make well, it? Or you can't use regular cadmium tools. You can't use regular water to wash it down. You know, titanium is a, it, there's a reason people don't build airplanes out of titanium. <laughs> but titanium is strong, it's flexible, and it's lightweight. Hmm. And we imported it all from Russia under under secret guise of, uh, you know, <laughs> false companies. Uh, that's the real irony of it is that they gave us all the titanium so we could spy on them. But um, it's a difficult, really difficult um, material to work with. And if you read you read the Skunk Works by Ben Rich, his, uh, Kelly Johnson's number two guy, he says there was nothing easy about the SR-71. Everything was intimidating about it, the way it looked, the way it flew, and how hard it was to build. And yeah, some things in life aren't easy. And mm-hmm. and I think sometimes we've lost that in, in modern generations. They're like, well, it's just going to be hard. Let's just do it. They go, well, I want to find an easy way to do it. <laughs> and that was to yeah. me such the, you know, there were so many great moments in the 20th century of aviation from the Wright brothers to the moon landing. But to build an airplane like that, and it worked, and it lasted, mm-hmm. and it was reliable, and it was a 57 Chevy. But it it did the job like nothing else. To this day, it stands alone. Wow, amazing! Uh, How many hours did you end up with in the SR seventy one? I had almost five hundred hours. You didn't fly it, you know, maybe once or twice a week. Sure. So you weren't flying it all the time. So anything over four hundred hours, you're doing pretty good. Right. The high time guys have barely thirteen, fourteen, fifteen hundred hours. You know, the the highest time guys. So it's. Each hour was a, was a, an exciting adventure, though. And oh, um, the airplane, I always said, would uh, humble you, excite you, and scare you simultaneously uh, <laughs> every day, at least at least a couple oh, times. Dear. Yeah. And you said in one of your talks there was less than 100 pilots ever trained on it? Actually, 86 men got to fly no uh, reconnaissance missions in this jet in history. Wow. And then yeah. a handful of backseaters, sounds like. Well, 86 backseaters. So, so well, it's well, no, I meant the, the yeah. distinguished folks as well, the oh, people yes. you needed and to. Don't, and let's not slight them at all. Right. They, you don't, you, we talk a lot about the pilots and flying the jet. Okay, it did only have one stick, and yes, you were driving and everything. But uh, as I often say in my talks, that guy in the back was the heart of the mission. He, he's running right. the navigation. He's running the sensors. He's running the cameras. He's doing it. And I used to joke, uh, and I say this in my talks, is that if we ever shot down, I always say, Walt, you're the spy. <laughs> I'm just the driver, you know. And the fact is, though, it was a two-man uh, mission, mm-hmm. and that's why they teamed you up with a backseater to where you flew every mission with that same guy for right. four years because you had to learn to communicate effectively between cockpits. And if you look in that airplane, both cockpits are radically different. They don't even look the same. So when stuff's happening in the front and you're trying to convey that to the man in the back, you have to be able to speak in languages that he's not seeing that gauge. Mm -hmm. And that was the hardest part of the training program. And that's why the training program takes one year. I think my A7 was four months. Uh, (laughs) You know, it was one year. And part of that is, uh, well, it's a lot of sim- six months of simulator time, but it's learning to communicate effectively when emergencies happen because nothing, there's no minor emergencies at Mach 3. Sure. I mean, you, you, you better get on it right away and, and know what to do. And to coordinate that between cockpits uh, was one of the, one of the uh, challenges of that whole training program. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. 
And of course, being crewed up when Walt was sick, you were sick, right? When you had duty, he had duty. That's I mean, did true. Did you ever fly with someone else? Uh, uh, very or? rarely. Okay. One time, Walter did fly with another guy. Uh-huh. Uh, I was gone, and then one time I flew. I had another backseater, and I will tell you, it was so different. Yeah. It was like, is that how? Well, you're reading the checklist too much to me now. You know, we had our own <laughs> way of doing things because uh-huh. there was a lot of leeway about how you how you wanted to do stuff in the okay. climb. What what checks do you want to hear? But there was so many. I mean, the checklist was pretty thick. So, yes, it was different, and you loved having your – it was like you were mated to, to – that was your wife, and you, don't give me any <laughs> spare wives out here today. You know, I want that one. <laughs> Goodness. Oh, I can imagine. You, you talked about the records, and I think if I remember correctly, you made a comment in one of your talks about being at roughly 90,000 feet in Mach 3.3, and, and the jet still had more to give. I mean, do you suppose one of the 86, 87 pilots, uh, perhaps even you, holds unrecognized speed and altitude records in this aircraft? Absolutely. I have no doubt about it. (laughs) The jet would always go a little faster if you'd let it. And the real limit was, of course, the compressor inlet uh, temperatures. Uh, The equivalent airspeed, Mm -hmm. you didn't want to get it too low. Uh, So there's the limit. The airplane won't go Mach 6 and do, you know, go into orbit or anything. It's it's an air-breathing jet. And I have to always remind people this when they try to compare it to an X-15 or think it's a rocket or something. But as you as you're flying at Mach 3.1 or 3.2, even uh, the jet would, would creep up and want to as it got lighter, as you burned fuel down, mm-hmm. and it, uh, it would want to go faster. Many days you were pulling it back. Now it all depends on their temperatures and everything sure. deviations, but we saw speeds that scared us some days. So uh, you know, especially when you were leaving a major landmass going over the ocean, at, right as you hit the coast, you'd get what we call mock roll, and sometimes the the mock number would be uh, a little scary there. But uh, the jet would just do it effortlessly. Uh, and you had to just keep, you had to kind of hold it back a little bit, like you were. Um, reining it in like you were walking a tiger on a leash, and mm. sometimes that tiger was going to pull you, and you have to uh, just right. pull it back a little bit. Uh, but it had limits. I mean, the jet, again, uh, people get a little fantastic with their assessments. Sure. It, it, some scientist figured out, some engineer, I think, thought, okay, I think it would do Mach 4 at this altitude. And, and, and you know, we all go like, well, none of us are going to try to ever even you know, sure. do something like that because you'd lose the jet, probably run out of air and over temp it or something. So you didn't want to hurt the airplane. So you didn't you didn't try to just, uh, you know, mm-hmm. let it go. You. Each mission was programmed for a certain Mach number, for, so those turns and the, that that route was precise, right. so that you had the jet right where the, you wanted it to be, because it's going to affect your turn radius greatly. Oh, and imagine. you're already taking three states to turn around at that speed, <laughs> so um, you you want to you tried to fly the programmed right. Mach. That okay. Day. Yeah. And I've seen a picture in one of your talks of the cockpit, pretty basic, old steam gauges. Oh, I mean, of course, F one hundred six. Yeah. What was it actually like sticking rudder-wise to fly the SR-71? It, okay, uh, picture an F-4 with three bags of gas. Exactly. It's it so very heavy. stable, heavy, okay. but nice, stable, very solid feel to it. A 57 Chevy, I'm telling you. <laughs> it was an F-4 with three bags of gas. Right. Nothing fancy about it. It was an F-106 cockpit. It was a Century Series. And, it, uh, and I loved it. I, I just, that, okay. to me, was what made it so classic. Um, it made sense, round gauges, you know, sure. there was nothing magical. In fact, I had a better uh, moving map display in the A7 than they had. The A7 was just a, <laughs> way ahead of its time. Right. I, I could talk for hours on the A. I hope you had a good A7 we guy. Did. Okay, because that airplane was the greatest cockpit, and let me just say that right now, ever designed, ever. <laughs> 
But I got in the SR. I figured, well, this must be more high tech. No, the moving map display was was uh, a joke compared to the. Uh, it didn't really do anything to help you. Guess what kind of radar we had in the jet? We didn't have any radar. <laughs> Uh, guess what kind of flaps and speed brake? We didn't have any flaps or speed brake. Uh, guess what kind of computer helped fly the There was no computer really? to fly the jet. So it was a 57 Chevy. Wow. Now, I was there when they finally put computer in the airplane. Mm -hmm. I had to transition from analog to computer. My, Walter and I both had to learn both systems, which was a real pain but the reason they did that was not to help fly the jet, but to help manage the spike movement for the unstarts. Uh, and it was very handy to have, very helpful. Uh, so it was just an augmentation, of the computers. But it was a, there was no fly-by-wire. There was no – this was your basic Century Series F-106 type uh, wow. jet that was solid as a rock. I mean, I plowed through thunderstorms and hailstorms. and I mean, it was just – it heated up to where – Guess what kind of anti-icing devices? We didn't have any. <laughs> you had speed, I guess, right? Yeah. Cables and pulleys or hydromechanical or what yeah. actuated flight uh, controls? Uh, it was your basic send. This is a 1959 yeah. design airplane. Wow. What are you asking? They didn't even invent <laughs> fly-by-wire. No, no, I, yeah, I just thought maybe some hydraulic assist or anything. It felt good. Uh, I mean, it was a, in the pattern. It's very stable, very slow. I, I flew. It's the biggest jet I ever flew. So mm. to me, it was like, right. you know. But but uh, squirrely and landing at all or crosswinds? Oh no, or? no, very solid. And huh. it's just that you're going so darn fast right. that you better not make any mistakes. Uh, they usually program your mission to have just enough gas to shoot one approach when you came back. So your job as the pilot, people think your job was to be the spy pilot and take pictures. Not sure. yeah, that yeah, that was in there. Your main job was to make gas, and there's many ways to make gas on a five-hour mission and come. Uh, Descending, climbing, doing all the things, throttle technique, witchcraft, voodoo. Mm -hmm. You learn how to make gas. You know you did this in your F-18 when you, you, you oh, know, yes. that little boat is out there in the Pacific somewhere and you go, eh, we're a little behind the fuel curve here. You figured out ways in the descent to <laughs> adjust those nozzles, didn't That's you? Right. Okay, well, this SR, your mission was to make fuel. Mm. Now, I'd flown F-5s, T-38s and all, so I, I'd spit for gas on those airplanes. I I got an ESR at 80,000 pounds of fuel. I'm a happy camper. And I, Walter <laughs> said, man, you are a magician with the fuel. We're like 2,000 pounds ahead of the – how do you do that? <laughs> hey, it's just you learn how to do that. Yeah. And if you didn't do that, you had enough gas for one approach, which brings me back to your question about landing. You better uh, be on center line or not because you're at 185 190 knots across the fence, <laughs> and there's not a lot of room for correction or error. So in, in IFR conditions and all, and those planners would plan you back for one. It's like, hey, guys, you know, how about planning a little pad in here? And, you know, the numbers they're using, you know from your experience, the book numbers are never exactly what actually in real life happens. Right. So you'd make fuel <laughs> on each mission, and I got very, very good at that, and uh, that saved our life a couple of times. Uh, I came back and landed in a typhoon at Kadena oh, in geez. Okinawa one day and uh, rolled out of the ILS about 100 yards left of the runway and said, there's no way we're making this happen. If you had been in A-10, of course you could have. But you, and so we had to go around, and we had enough gas, which takes 4,000 pounds to go around, by the way. Oh, we had enough gas to go around. Walt yeah. said, God, you are a sky god. You made, you made 4,000 extra pounds today. And that was we went around, and then we, we stayed visual. We stayed under the cloud deck and landed in a god-awful crosswind. Yeah. But, I mean, the jet was 
it all goes back to your question. What was it like to fly? It was solid. It was reliable. It was a 59 Chevy, man. It was just like, it was, <laughs> it was your life and it was just solid. And, uh, but it was big and fast and didn't do every, anything too quickly. Sure. So you had to think ahead Okay. In your pattern and plan, we did overhead 360 final turn patterns. Yeah, which I, into the overhead. Nice. I couldn't believe it, yeah. but it, we did, and you'd be yeah. horsing it around, sweating in that, that spacesuit in the summertime. Oh gosh, it was fun. Well, so you and I understand it for sure. I just want to make sure everyone else understands that you would refuel, of course, which is where you would take on fuel several times a mission. But yes. when you say make fuel, effectively, what you mean there is when you said you had a very planned route, you also had a fuel expected burn at each route. So if you arrive at point seven with more fuel than you expected to, well, then you have just made that fuel. And so yes, that's and, a way of being more yeah, efficient. I don't want to confuse the yep. uh, listeners, but yes, you, you have throttle technique. Well, it's just like the way people drive their car. Right. I mean, if you do 75 all day and the other guy does 60, he's going to have a little more gas when that's he right. gets there. So it, you just have to learn the, the throttle positions in the climb and descent. If you're refueling uh, four times on a mission, you're going to climb and descend four times in that mission to come back down to the tanker and slow down. Mm-hmm. And you're you're burning, uh, like say you're going through about fifteen or thirteen thousand gallons in an hour, hour and a half. Oh, <laughs> so you better uh, be really judicious about how you uh, modulate your afterburners sure. and your 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 climb and descent. Speaking of performance, was there a G? I'm sure there was a G limit. Was it ever a factor? What was it? If you're willing to very say very low G G yeah. tolerance. The jet. I don't think I ever pulled over three or three and a half Gs in the airplane. Maybe four one day. Okay. Just but it. Didn't want you to pull out no, G's. and it wasn't designed for that. But no. in the event that the Soviets ever did figure out how to get an interceptor or surface air missile to you, I'm guessing that would have been useful. Um, no. If you were fired at, the the jet was not a turning airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it just wasn't. You're going to crack the airplane uh, right before the wing uh, started. It's so had that long fuselage. Wow, right. You're going to crack it. Huh. Your speed was, you know, you can make a little turn. With that speed, sure. to confuse a missile, he has to lead you by thirty miles, and he's going to burn out of fuel. <laughs> but uh, you're you're not; it's not a turning airplane. So speed you, was your defense. The highest G load was if you did a bad landing. I think we went to like four <laughs> or five, you know. Uh, but no, you, you most of our turns were planned at two and a half to three uh, G turns okay. and stuff. They, it, and most of that was in the uh, Eastern Germany and uh, West Germany. Uh, corridors when we were doing those missions you mm-hmm. had to you had to pull it back to about 2.8 Mach because you, you you'd overshoot the you're just uh, arc yeah you're not wow. really be able to turn that sharp at those speeds was there any part of your training that did any sort of low altitude flying as far as maybe if you were needing to do a dash away from something or no low altitude stuff nothing okay. no uh, we no stall series. Hmm. Never learned how to stall the air. Just do not get below <laughs> 290. <laughs> okay, okay. No stall series. Right. No acrobatics whatsoever. No, I would think not. No uh, low level. But the the big thing was uh, you were limited to 400 uh, knots at low low altitude because of the Q limit. Mm. Uh, the, it, it, so at 400 knots at an air show, you come by real fast and you pull, you, you could get six Gs on there, but you crack the spine of the yeah. airplane. Down low, boy, you lit the burners on a cold winter day at Beale at sea level. Mama, you are you are along for the ride. <laughs> if you want to know what it's like to taxi out in a double-A fuel dragster someday, oh, you're going to get on a winter day on the runway with the SR. And I think that's why someone started calling it the sled the first time. That is a great feeling of, uh, I'll just tell you, my first flight, uh, when you do that first climb out, 
the first thing he says is, you better hurry up and get the gear up because it has only a 300-knot gear limiting speed. <laughs> <clears throat> so you're going to have 400 at the end of the runway. Oh, my. So you, you're rushing to get the gear up, and he said, I'm pulling the nose. Now we're leveling at 26,000, so you might want to start pushing the nose over at about 16. And I thought, what are you talking about, pal? I'll... I've done this before. I fly. Yeah. <laughs> we leveled somewhere at about 32 that day, and I, I missed the altitude and everything. He says, I told you. <laughs> SAC uh, departure was laughing. Uh, they'd oh, seen it before. Yeah, they've seen that. That's uh, right. But on a winter day, uh, it was incredible. Uh, was there a runway limit for minimum length? Actually, in the book, it said you could land on a 7,000-foot runway. No I looked that up one day. I said, you are kidding me, man. I don't want to be doing that. But the guys actually landed in Bodo, Norway that day, a uh, big emergency coming back from the Arctic Circle. Uh-huh. And uh, they did. And that runway, as I recall, is not, not all that long. It's like eight or something. Wow. So it can be done. Yeah. Big drag shoot, 40-foot yep. uh, B-52 drag shoot really helps. You get a good headwind. Yeah, mm-hmm. you. Okay. I've turned off at the uh, center line at Beale before on a, on a windy a headwind day. But uh, How long is the Beale runway? Well, the Beale runway is like 10, 5, or okay. 7, 11. It was great. All right, uh, so you've gotten off around... Six or so. Oh, yeah, I've, sure. I've seen it happen, huh. but uh, boy, I'm seven. <laughs> That's a big, you're coming in there pretty quick. Awesome. Yeah. Brian, you said the word air shows earlier, and I've been dying to ask you this since I knew I was going to interview you. As my listener knows, my start began when I went to the Point Magoo Air Show in November of 1978. I have a picture of me leaning over an F 14, peering inside. A couple years later, we were showing up at that air show a little late because of traffic or whatever. As we're walking in, my brothers and I, young aviation enthusiasts, we swore we saw an SR-71 go flying by. Is there any chance, I don't know what years you flew this, but is there any chance you were flying or do you know of the SR-71 what, making which an Which air show was this? The Point Magoo air show down in Oxnard? Oh, yeah, the point, they did fly when it wasn't me. The, okay. I believe an SR did make an appearance at Point Magoo at one point quite some years ago. Because that was in the, what, 80, 81? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to yes. us, it was, you know, you'd see in a drawing, you'd heard something, but it was still... Yeah. Well, well behind the curtain of, of yeah. secrecy. And that was just amazing to us. We were cursing ourselves for being late and only seeing it from the parking lot. I remember the first time I saw one at an air show. I was sitting on my A-10. I took, uh, we took two A-10s from Myrtle Beach to the Cleveland National Air Show, which mm-hmm. is quite a big show. And apparently an SR was at the, the big Montreal show. And right. on the way home to California, I was going to make a, a low pass <laughs> at the Cleveland Air Show. All right. So I thought, well, I've never even seen one of these airplanes. I vaguely heard about it. I had no intention of ever flying one at that time. And I was sitting on my A-10 all fat, dumb, and happy. Uh, we're pretty cool. The kids are loving the A-10. We're letting them climb up the ladder and everything. And and uh, somebody said, yeah, there's going to be an SR. So here he comes, uh, gear down, all slow, making a nice low approach. And I thought, well, it's a big deal. It's just a big black airplane. Um, you know, just doesn't even have a gun. Come on. <laughs> And uh, just flew by, nice slow, and then all of a sudden the uh, nose pitched down, uh, the uh, gear came up, and then two giant plumes and burner came out and shook the ground, and that nose went straight up, and I thought, you move an airplane that big at that level, that angle, and that speed, and that was impressive. Uh, I I thought, wow. That planted a seed in you, didn't it? (laughs) Well, not that I wanted to fly it at that moment. I just thought, man, that is impressive. Mm. The thing about the airplane, and I say this in my talks, is you didn't hear that airplane as much as feel it. Mm. That decibels of those J-85s, they never made an engine like that, and that's the only jet to ever use J-85. Really? The Navy had their chance. It could have used it, but those programs were canceled, and they had this big, fat, beefy 
burn gas, go fast, make noise jet engine <laughs> sitting on the shelf. And Kelly said, give me that one. It'll eat rocks. Yeah. And that jet, uh, when you heard the burners light on that airplane, it shook the ground and it rattled your skeletal frame if you were standing near the runway. And Because I used to do that at Beale when we were mobile crew. When it would take off, I'd get out of the car just to hear it and feel it. And, uh, <laughs> Walter would sit in the car and say, man, I'm ruining my eardrums on that one. And it was the sound penetrated your body in a way that was painful for just a moment. But yet, a uh, exciting glorious. and uh, yeah, glorious pain. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We're just insane, but oh yeah, uh, no, God, we have a sickness it was. Uh, in that regard, it, we do, but it but it was a great sickness that uh, yeah. that jet sounded like no other plane. The people who have ever heard it or seen it, they'll all agree with you and tell you that yeah, yeah they always remember that. Say, wow, it was almost like a space shuttle launch or mm. something, which is the only other thing that you know, makes the ground shake like yeah. that. But it was a great sound. Missed your chance to fly a jet fighter and now you're looking for the next best thing? Head over to Call the Ball in La Mirada, California, where you can experience flying a high-fidelity virtual reality flight simulator over Southern California and the Pacific Ocean. Take off and soar through the skies, enjoying 360-degree scenic views from a virtual Lockheed F-35 Lightning II. And for a limited time, Fighter Pilot Podcast listeners enjoy a 59% discount on all flights. Book your virtual flight experience today. Visit calltheballsimulators.com and use promo code FPP19 when booking for this exclusive listener discount. That's calltheballsimulators.com, located just minutes from Knott's Berry Farm in La Mirada, California. And it wasn't just the engine that provided the speed of the aircraft. Wasn't it also the way it was fitted into the aircraft and what you had like a maneuverable, I should say movable spike in the front to arrange for the shock waves, for the speeds. And I mean, yeah, that- something like that. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> well, it did permit this amazing high speed for an air breathing aircraft. So, Actually, the real, yeah. the real secret of the plane, and we could talk about this for like uh, an hour, but, uh, I'm not an engineer and all that knowledgeable, but I will tell you this. The real secret of the airplane was not the, the jet engine. It was the spike inlet system, mm. and that's where Ben Rich writes a lot about that in his book, The Skunk Works. Those, those people were ingenious that they said, okay, there has to be a way that we can go where other jets can't go and sustain it. Everybody can go Mach 2.4, 2.5, and then they three things happen. They run out of gas. They burn up the compressor, mm-hmm. and they they run out of uh, air. They they choke on the on the air. Hmm. Uh, they just can't. They overheat. Uh, they just can't do it. Right. So they figured out a way to reposition the shock wave around the the intake, around the engine, and dump it back into the burner segment. This is simple history major talk. Now this sure. is not engineering talk. <laughs> um, and dump it back into the burner section. So you got free ram air. So it's not a ramjet. But you're you're recollecting the ram air in the back the end principles. after it's heated, wow. and now you the jet engine's providing only twenty percent of your thrust at Mach three, <laughs> and this was such an ingenious design. But it required two spikes moving simultaneously, evenly, and very precisely. And I can to this day tell you one and five eighths of an inch per tenth of Mach number. Those are numbers you will never forget the rest Great. of your life because those they better move. And you had two gauges uh-huh. or one gauge with two needles. Right. And those needles better stay overlapped because if they don't, <laughs> the dreaded unstart. Now, an unstart is not a failure of the engine. The engine keeps running. 
the unstart is the the spike starting of the shock wave. Uh-huh. It has to go back out, recapture the shock wave, and then start out. Well, now you, if you have one spike like this and one spike back, you've got an, a yaw moment uh-huh. 18 feet apart. Have you ever seen hydroplane boat racing? Mm-hmm. And when one does this and they flip up and then they, they disintegrate, disintegrate mm-hmm. is the word. So your biggest nightmare in the simulator was learning how to control the spikes. And now they're automatic. They move. But those that needle, you can take them manually if you have to, God forbid. Mm-hmm. So, But what was happening was the, if you look at the inlet, those tips are really sharp. And they m- start moving after around 1.6 Mach. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to where they get 26 inches deep, they get full aft. That's when the jet is just a, you're burning so little gas. You're burning less gas the faster you go because of that design. So you're getting all this free ram Crazy. air. And they figured out a way, let's make that air work for us without the engine having to work. The engine's providing 20%. It's, it's the most incredible design for, for 1960. And you mm-hmm. go like... Wow. And when you look at the charts and diagram, it all makes sense. You try to explain it. It's like, I need a PhD in engineering. But as a pilot, so what you were doing as a pilot, you were deciding how much air to spill. You had little vent doors. If you notice little vents on top of the inlet, your job as the pilot was to play a little Russian roulette every day about, okay, do I feel lucky today? (laughs) Uh, How much air am I going to spill out till the doors start closing? Oh, gosh. Because the more accurately I can do that, the better gas I'm going to make. And if I don't do it accurately, when I get that unstart, ooh, I just burnt, I just lost 2,000 pounds of gas. Now, drag, gas, critical. Mm. One, one degree of rudder movement is drag. You're losing gas. So everything was about making fuel. So you'd play this game every day based on air temperature, compressor inlet uh, pressures, Mach number, everything. And to, to make that as efficient as possible. There was a little shifter. Then once it got full aft, mm-hmm. you were a bullet, mm-hmm. except faster. Wow. And But it was the inlet system. You were very correct. The engine itself was just a big, beefy, you know, F-15's got big, beefy engines too. It, so so, so MiG-25, but yeah. they can't sustain Mach 3 for an hour and a half, can they? <laughs> but they burn up. So the inlet system was the genius of this airplane. And the thing no one could copy, duplicate, never figured out. That was the, the heart of the system. It was the headache for the pilot. Mm. It was what caused unstarts sometimes, and it's why they put computers in the airplane finally in 1983 just to help that problem. It's how you lost some early jets with the early guys. That, that early CIA guy, they never found a piece of the jet. They never found him anywhere out there in the Pacific really? to this day. You know, and we're pretty sure it was a catastrophic unstart, and you know, mm. at that speed, it just disintegrates. On that note, just... Out of curiosity, when there was a mishap, was there a team of folks that would descend on that to try to preserve, whether it was the cameras or the technology? I mean, I have to think so. Do you think, speculating now, (laughs) do you think that was part of the reason you didn't fly over the Soviet Union is we didn't want to take the chance of them parading like they did with the U-2 that they shot down? Uh, Probably. I I won't presume to guess all the all the reasons uh, mm-hmm. went on in the decision-making, sure. but uh, it could have been, but it was not necessary in, okay. in so many ways of right. what we really wanted to be looking at. Right. Um, but if it went down in Arizona, boy, there was a team out there. You bet. Lickety split. Well, they lost that last year right at the very end of the program over by the Philippines. Uh, subsonically, guys jumped out. We're both okay. And the jet was right there in uh, a couple hundred feet of water right off the – and they, whoa, they had a recovery oh, team. Bet. Got every piece of that, yeah. Yeah. No, it was, uh, but you know, I mean, people would look at that technology and go like, "Ah, this is like ancient uh, technology. It's just wires and gauges, and there was nothing." <laughs> but it was that inlet right. system. Mm-hmm. 
the genius of how that air was rerouted and the moving spike and uh, man. It was so uh, amazing when you're going through training to see that. Yeah. But then, what a headache! Like say, you had you had to manage it, and and you got you got more comfortable with it as you went along. But other jets just didn't have that. You never worried about that sort of right. thing. Yeah. But you were watching a lot of things in the cockpit of this airplane because you had to watch temperatures and pressures and fuel and the, the nitrogen level and the center of gravity and every little ounce of drag <laughs> and the Mach number and the uh-huh. and the route and what oh there's the next turn point already. So it was a it was an attention getting experience, to say the least. I can imagine. Can we talk very quickly about the flight gear? I mean, normally you strap on, you're already in a flight suit, you strap on a G-suit, maybe in a harness, and off you go in your T-38, and you did a lot of that while you flew the Blackbird. But if you had, let's say, a 9 o'clock takeoff in an SR-71, what time would you show up in the equipment room, and, and what were you putting on? Well, it wasn't quite as bad. Everyone thought it was more like a space uh, shuttle launch or something. You're mm-hmm. in there 12 hours. No, it was a couple hours. So you'd go into That's the— still in- a long time, though. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, you'd go into the in-flight kitchen. You'd mm-hmm. be eating your breakfast. Maintenance would come in, give you the forms, look over any problems with the jet— You'd go into the PSD room, the physiological support division where they had all the suits, and those there's guys put you in a big lazy boy chair, and they're going to suit you up. You mm-hmm. get your long johns on. You take a little mini physical. They check your ears, any any clogged up uh, sinuses or anything. You're not going. Blood pressure, all right, you're fine. And they uh, suit you up. You, you, two guys are suiting you up. And then they put the helmet on. They do a pressure check, an oxygen check, and all. And then you just sit there, and you, you, you they get on a van. They take you out playing with lazy boys on there. <laughs> so it's it's not as bad as um, uh, people think. The suit itself, uh, you know, was pretty self-sustaining. Uh, but uh, then when you got to the jet and you sat in the cockpit, you had uh, a guy on each side connecting all the, you know, the oxygen mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the seat kit and the straps. and the, uh, so, you had a, so you just sit, sat there like a little... Like a little queen bee while everybody was attending uh, to all your, your connections. Oh, I see. That sounds pretty extravagant, actually. Well, it does, but it, <laughs> but you didn't have to show up. You know, you got the weather. You got to, you sure. ate your little meal. You had your maintenance debrief, and uh, you looked over the route summary. They gave you the, the printout of the summary of the, the route and all. And you, you Now, what I did, I always drew it out on a little map I used to always carry mm-hmm. with me. Uh, I did a smart thing when I first started. I thought, the summaries just gave you all the lat long and all the, you know, Walter had all that stuff in sure. there. But when you're flying at that altitude and that speed over across the United States, let's say you're going from California to Florida and back or around Cuba and back, which was very frequent, I kind of want to know where I am in the big picture of things. Am I over Arkansas now or Utah? I'd kind of <laughs> like to know in case something happens and then we got to go down. So I, I went to the library and I found a, a geography book that had a, a picture of the whole United States uh-huh. with every state that was about the size of my kneeboard. And I made a copy of that. And so I made a whole bunch of copies of it and had every state. So every time we had a route, I'd take a little uh, marker and I'd go, this is exactly where you are at each of these checkpoints. And then here's where my divert. Well, that was more value to me. As we're flying along, because Walt's managing every turn point, every you know, but you 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 just can't realize how much geography you're seeing, or mm-hmm. a lot of times you're not even looking out. You know, you just see clouds, or right. you know, you see massive geography. Yeah, and the world looks like a geography book at eighty five thousand feet. <laughs> it's the greatest thing I ever saw. I had the privilege of seeing the Straits of Gibraltar 
on a clear day in a turn, and it looked just like it did in the geography book. So I used to carry a little map of the United States. A couple other guys started asking me, can I borrow your – that's great, because you can't really keep a, a, a picture of where you are based on that summary of just right. numbers. And uh, that was helpful to me. And one day we did have a little emergency uh, oil thing on one engine. We had to, we had the emergency over Idaho or somewhere. We landed in Denver, but that was the closest thing by the time you get down, sure. you know. So that was just for situational awareness. I just like to know where we are in the route or here, here we're in that turn or we're doing Korea and you're repositioning in the Sea of Japan now. And there's, okay, Iwakuni now is your, is your uh, or, or Yakota. Now that's mm-hmm. your, your divert. You got, okay, I can see on my little map exactly where I am now as opposed to just darkness or right. nothingness. So it was, it, you yeah. learned a lot of little techniques in the airplane, but it was a magnificent airplane. And, and the greatest part of it, people always ask me, was that fact that you were doing a real mission. Mm-hmm. It meant something. You right. were making a difference in the world. We beat communism. We won the Cold War. We brought the Berlin Wall down. We kicked Gaddafi's butt. We kept those guys in check. And I always make a joke about this. I always say, "How? why do you think Ronald Reagan won every SALT talk he went? Why did he get every concession every time? He thought, oh, he's a great negotiator. We'd like to think that he showed up at those meetings and said, hey, you guys are testing those missiles, and you said you weren't going to do that. And they would go, no, Ronnie, we would never do such a thing. <laughs> and he said, well, I have an 8 by 10 glossy black and white from Brian and Walter. It says you're a lion scumdog commie. <laughs> now, that's a loose translation, but... The fact is, we knew that we what we were doing was real, had consequence, and made mm-hmm. difference. And you know, as you know, you train for so many years, training, training, training. Then you're an instructor, instructor, instructor. Mm-hmm. You're doing, you're training for a battle that it never comes, maybe, or you rarely get to really go do your craft. Uh, and we were doing something real, and that was very satisfying to to know that. Oh, I'm sure. No, we have spoken of that before on this show, where I say it's a lot like being on a football team and all you ever do is scrimmage. You'd like to play a game or maybe you don't want to necessarily play a game, but if a game's going to be played, you want to be in it. Well, and I'm not saying, I'm not uh, provoking that. I wish we had more wars. Right, right. That's my point. I like that I didn't have any weapons. I wasn't provoking any war. Mm -hmm. We were just keeping them in check and we were calling their bluff. And we're saying, no, we got, you got the picture. Information. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of weapons, so the YF-12 had the, I believe it was called the AIM-47 Falcon, predecessor to the AIM-54 Phoenix later. But other than that, you had speed as a weapon? My weapon was my pocket knife on my spacesuit. Not even a 9 millimeter? Nothing. Wow. Nothing. That was no probably pill, be a liability. No pill to take if no? I were shot All down. Right. Nope. That's Everyone always uh, says that. Urban folklore? Big folklore. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But here was one thing I will tell you. In the Strategic Air Command uh, handbook, and I've never read this anywhere else. You know, when you're a new student in training a new plane, you read the the big dash one, and mm-hmm. you're reading all the all the nitty the gritty. B nose mm-hmm. and the nitty gritty. And well, this is the only book, Air Force book, I've ever read where it says you will go down with the airplane. At no time will any part of the airplane ever be allowed to fall into enemy hands. And if it means you go down with the plane, you will. I've, I've never seen him write that. And they're like, yeah, well, wait a minute, I didn't make choices this year. Maybe I want to eject that day. Uh, and they actually wrote that in wow. there. So that's how important the airplane was. To You could train a new crew, but we can't build another SR. We couldn't. Mm-hmm. They McNamara destroyed all the forging, pressing and everything and right. said, uh, we don't want anyone to ever. And they couldn't. And you could never. The vendors that made all those special uh, parts and tools and uh, equipment for it, they're all long gone. It's like people, can we just get it back into? Oh, my gosh. No, no. Yeah. 
So you it said you you will give your life for this job. Yeah. <laughs> wow, there's a bold statement right yeah, there. Well, that puts things in perspective. Yeah. Going back to that word for you yeah. and and the severity or not the severity, but the uh, consequentialness of your mission for sure. And we felt good so, about it. Yeah, good. Well, you were making a difference. You know, when you're training, you feel like you're making a small difference on a tactical level, but you were making a strategic difference, and that had to be fulfilling. Well, and there was so much going on in the world in those days, you know, with the mm. Gaddafi thing, and, uh, yeah. and and it was like Reagan took a stand. Yeah, we loved that guy because he really he he made us uh, or allowed us to mm. do stuff with the jet, and he liked that it carried a double sonic boom. There was a sonic boom that came off the spike, and the nose of the jet. So you got a baboom, and he liked that, and they heard it. The bad guys heard it. There was no secret that the jet was over. It wasn't like a surprise. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I wonder if an SR is flying over. They knew it was there. <laughs> it, they, they could see the heat source, I'm sure, but they heard it, and he liked that mm-hmm. a lot. And yeah. uh, he, he'd send us on some missions where he go, uh, we kind of did that, that area twice. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's called them. a message. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and uh, wow. that was that was one thing you don't have with satellites. You know, the airplane was a, his big stick, mm. and uh, we were proud to proud to bring the sound of freedom right. to those people. Oh, it was a statement. And you mentioned in one of your talks about the so many hundreds or maybe thousands of missiles fired at it, but no successful engagement by over four thousand five hundred missiles were fired, and not one, not one piece of one was hmm. ever hit. No aircraft intercept. No aircraft was ever lost to hostile fire. Now, a lot of people tried to intercept you. Yeah. Now, one thing we did do, since you're a Navy guy, I guess I'll point this out. (laughs) We used to go down and say, all right, we got a little concerned about some of the new MiGs doing zoom climbs with these new missiles that are head-on and, you know, Mm -hmm. had a head-on capability. We went down China Lake and said, all right, you guys, Navy guys, attention. We want you to shoot us down. We're going to give you our altitude, speed, everything, and we're going to go straight and level, and we're going to make this the easiest shot you ever have. We want you to zoom climb your, your F-14, whatever, and, and shoot us down. They go, okay, it's great. And uh, I'm going to do it with the F-15 also. And it was uh, really good because it gave us such confidence. They came back and they said, wow, you know what? It's just so amazing. We have you. We have you. We don't have you. <laughs> it's like the, the gate. They said, you're, you're in the gate. We got the launch. We got the target. And then... It goes like that. It said it would take a golden BB. You feel pretty confident. It, mm. It's such a tough shot. I got to lead you, and then you're you're through the gate so fast right. that we felt I had a little more confidence about that. I will tell you a little funny story. Uh, one day we called the Navy F-14 guys, and we said, "Okay, we we did that. What was your data day?" He says, "Oh yeah, we shot we shot you guys down twice today." And we had to tell them, we didn't even fly today. We were calling you to schedule the, yeah, as a Navy guy. Yeah, we shot you down twice today. We didn't even fly. Uh, so that was a typical well, Navy guy. Never let like, the truth get in the yeah. way of a good story, right? But uh, it gave us a little confidence because uh, if you notice, the newer SRs had the little dimples on the nose. Yeah. ECM, mm. electronic countermeasures okay. for, for those exact new uh, head-on capability okay. for the Russian MiGs. And so uh, the old SRs had a nice smooth chime right. in the front. We had the little dimples to give us a little extra. And uh, sometimes they would go off. We'd see, you know, people, mm. were, people were out there. They were trying. Yeah, okay. they're, they're scrambling just to right. say, I scrambled against the Blackbird, <laughs> you know, and I fell out of the sky out of gas and ideas. They but, can get uh, a patch that says so many thousand uh, <laughs> uh, 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 scrambles, but no engagements. So probably no need for any chaff or flares or any countermeasures, toad. Decoys your, your, or your weapon speed. was speed. Yep, awesome. All right. 
How about strengths and weaknesses? I mean, I know we've talked about the speed as a strength. Was there any, I mean, old technology, but still cutting edge and amazing. It's just one of the questions we ask on our aircraft series. But from your point of view as the pilot, I think we've talked about the strengths. Any weaknesses that you just wish, gosh, if they would have just fixed this? Well, you know, you always... Uh, you so, for always, example, did it have an autopilot? Oh, yeah. Okay. It had, was well, it? it's an F-101 voodoo ancient just autopilot. taken out thing. of the one airplane and put yeah. it in the other? Uh, right. but, it, but it did very well when it was uh, mated to the ANS. Now, we did have an R2. ANS? The ANS was an astro inertial nav system. Oh, okay. Uh, Walter could track about uh, 300 stars in broad daylight. Wow. In blue sky, that thing is tracking. Now, that's the only part of the airplane that still has some sort of secrecy to it. And don't worry, I don't know enough about it. To, you, could, <laughs> you could torture me all day, and I, I couldn't tell you. But I could tell you this. That was the most accurate uh, nav system ever. And it was like R2-D2. They put literally put it back. It's like a third crew member mm. back behind the guy, and they lifted it. It looked like R2-D2. <laughs> and uh, that system right. was uh, phenomenal. But... You know, I would have liked to have had a good radar or some, sure. you know, another gauge or two. But, you know, when you say weaknesses, I, d- I don't really – I can't – none come to mind because right. you thought – when, you, when you're driving your 57 Chevy, you say, this is the way it should be. So you That's don't right. see anything that – well, of course, I want the new cars are more comfortable and all, but you don't yeah. think about that because right. you don't want it to be a no, new car. it's not going to drive like a Maserati. So it isn't how dare you ask uh, that question? <laughs> uh, no. it, it couldn't turn, you know, yeah. and, and it was um, – it had a lot of old wiring and things, and all, but that—I don't—I've never even thought of a weakness there. Mm. I don't know an answer to that question because when you flew it, it was so reliable, and you had the greatest engines ever made in the world, and you, you, it was just—it just did it what it did so well mm-hmm. that you didn't say, "Boy, if we only had." I've never thought that. Right. No. You, you just—you know—every jet you ever flew, you said, "God, if I just had a little more thrust." Oh yeah. I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> The only wow. bad, okay, I'll tell you the one bad thing, and it's but okay. it's not even about the airplane. It's the damn tankers couldn't go faster to help us <laughs> stay on the boom. I think it's a weakness of the tankers. They should go faster. It's not our weakness. Uh, the jet was at, awesome. at at heavy weight and uh, twenty five thousand feet and, and slowing to three hundred knots. It didn't like it at mm-hmm. all. But that's not a weakness. It's at the that's tankers. A the yeah. tankers' weakness. Yeah. Uh, strengths obviously uh, reliable. Speed built by people with integrity mm. said we're going to make it work and 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 last. Right. And I talked to Bob Gillen at length. I had many meetings with him. The first guy to fly one, and he said, "Yeah, I had him make the seat bigger. I had him do the cockpit because he said I didn't. I, and, I, and they did. They changed what he said. Mm. So I mean, no one's ever even asked that question. To be honest, I can't even. I, I don't have a good answer to say what was it really you'd change in the plane because yeah. you just became one with the, you loved it so mm-hmm. much. Would you change your 57 Chevy? No, it's just perfect the way it is. Because it's not perfect, but it's it's, it's it. it. Right. Um, no, I, that, that's it's a really answer. a hard, I've yeah. never been asked that. Uh, you know, and that's a good question. But, you know, you could always find some little, t- I'm sure oh, there's sure. some guy be a technical thing. Yeah, yeah, look at me. I want a better radar map display or something, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, I want a, a better, you know, electronics or something. But right. no, it, it was... Um, no, it's good. It's one of the questions we always ask. That Imagine way an airplane built in, in 1960 <laughs> that was flying in 1990 that it, it still was unparalleled. Right. Uh, really. Yeah, then they brought it back for a couple of years, right? Well, they tried to bring it back, okay. and everybody said, this is great because we really need it. And they went to all the theater commanders in Europe and said, who wants SR-71 missions? And okay. every guy raised their hand. No, I was going to say. 
And they said, who's going to supply the tanker support? And everyone put their hand down, mm. and they never flew a mission. <laughs> that was the Achilles heel of this jet. The real problem is you never built the super tanker that we were supposed to build way long when Boeing Lockheed had that big political scandal. Mm. The super tanker never got built. And because it didn't, you're still flying KC-135s out there, and guess what? You don't have that many of them. And so when they said, who's going to provide the tanker support? As you know, mm. you flew in the Gulf. Every guy and his brother is up there sucking gas on every tanker available. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, SR can't have four tankers now dedicated with JP-7 out over there. We just didn't have the resource. Mm. So that was the, it's like, hey, no tankers, no mission. That was the weakness of the system. Did they ever advertise a cost per hour for flight operations? Somebody for? told me once $100,000 an hour uh, Recently, I read somewhere it was a million dollars. I don't, I don't well, know. Well, it depends on how much you want to include in that, well, yeah. of course. Well, but. And there was a lot of people involved with every mission. Right. People out there help you if you want. I mean, stuff you didn't know, like don't ask, but just go to this frequency. If you <laughs> <laughs> One day, Walter was on that frequency, and we're flying past Norway or somewhere, and some guy started talking to us. This one of the ground people. Mm. It was a very covert, very James Bond thing. I mean, it, there was stuff you, you don't need to know. <laughs> Okay. Good. That makes it easier. Yeah. Well, what about this? Is another dumb question, Brian? But well, you've asked many today. I know. Uh, thank you. I want to stay on my <laughs> roll here. Notoriety. So we ask often where, for example, in the F-14 episode, where is someone seeing the F-14? Duh, the movie Top Gun. I remember when I was a kid in the '80s, there was a TV show that came on for a while about some dad who was also an SR-71 pilot. Do you remember any show like that? But otherwise... Oh, yes, yes. No, it's called to glory. Is that he was? He was a U-2 pilot. No, no. It, we all watched it. It okay. was in the 80s. Yeah. Called to glory uh, with the, the guy, remember the guy he played on Coach, uh, tall guy. Oh, yeah. Called to glory. And what it was was uh, one of my favorite actresses, uh, the girl played his daughter. Gosh, I can't remember her name now. Um, should, it'll come to me. I should have told you I was going to ask you cute this. Cute blonde. She she went on to good movie star fame. She she played with Nicolas Cage in that uh, drunken Vegas movie, whatever. It was. But she was played the daughter in this movie. Okay. He was a U two guy, and then one day they said we have a new airplane for you flying. They opened the hangar door and there was an SR in there. But you never they it, there weren't episodes about the All SR. Right. It was just that was kind of the end of the show. Okay. Um, huh. And here's here's a little addendum to that story. All right. One day Walter and I take a T thirty eight out and back from Beale to Edwards just to gas and go. We had to pick up some documents there from the Palmdale guys. And we uh, we land there at Edwards. We're getting gas and go, and we're walking down the ramp. And in a hangar, they're filming an episode of that show. <laughs> and the star of the show, I, boy, what's his name, uh, is sitting right there. Uh, and he goes, so we walk in just to watch. The, and he goes, hey, stop, stop. You guys are, I like the real guys. He saw our patch. So we're sitting there talking, and the film crew's going, hey, we're burning money. Here That's we're right. Film. He wanted to talk to us. And so we interrupted an actual shoot of some scene in the hangar where they're doing it. And we thought, what are the odds of fun? So, yeah, Call to Glory. It All was right. kind of a cute. Uh, Otherwise, of course, you are making it popular, and it's just an 
very recognizable airplane anyway, but I can't think of too many movies that it's been in or no. not much in the news. It's maybe maybe back in those days. Well, uh, you remember uh, when Clint Eastwood landed the uh, secret... Uh, the Firefox. The Firefox. That yes. was sort of like an SR-type airplane. Right. I, that airplane would still be rolling on the ice cap, by the way. It would never have stopped, <laughs> I'm just telling you. It's still rolling. That's right. Um, in the movie Daryl about the computer kid, they had an uh, SR. He jumped in the backseat of an SR and flew. I, okay. And I only know this because people tell me all these all things. Right, you know, sure. they go, ah, "Did you see that?" You know. Yeah. Um, but no, it's. Uh, I, I I think Hollywood tries to use the shape, and I, some of the Star Wars jets are kind of mm-hmm. similar <clears throat> shape. You know? Yeah, it's got a very unique, uh, beautiful, elegant shape to it. I mean, oh, I, gosh, yes. the airplane is just like pointy. Uh, but it's elegant. There's a, there's an elegance to the airplane, and it looks different from every angle. Oh, yes. And as a guy that was in love with photographing it, I just was marveled at how each picture looked, gave it a different personality and looked different, and some was just the mighty beast, and some it was mm. just this razor-sharp dagger of danger, you know, and others it was it was just a big, big airplane, you know, get out of my way, the Enterprise, you know. But so it, it, it had a personality, and mm. that's another thing. They had to hand build each of these jets, wow. so each one flew a little bit different. Each one had a personality, hmm. and you only flew maybe a dozen tail numbers. You got to know each jet. One was always a little slower. One was a little faster. One was squirrely on the tanker. One flew a little crooked. You know, they just <laughs> you got to know each little sure. uh, personality. Well, if you had uh, back to your. 57 Chevy, if you had five of those in the garage, I'm sure they would all each drive a little different, especially well, if they were original and not all they would. restored. So, Well, Brian, we normally wrap up with a good sea story. You have provided several, thank you. But I want to specifically challenge you, if I may, uh-huh. on the veracity of your ground speed story because <laughs> you talk about an F-18 guy in there, and I need to represent here. So come on, is this embellished? Because I do believe never let the truth get in the way of a good story, but then again, you do advertise this talk and this story. Here's so. why I use that F-18 together, which is absolutely the truth. Uh-huh, okay. Absolutely true, because he thought he was so cool. And if he hadn't <laughs> talked with that cool Top Gun swagger, I might have let it go. I might have let it go. <laughs> and here's why. One day, the part of the story I don't tell you happened mm-hmm. way, way afterwards. I'm driving through Death Valley in my old Toyota 4Runner, me and my brother. He's sleeping in the back. We're going to Colorado, visit my folks for Christmas. There's not a soul on that road. You know how lonely that road is. It's oh, just yeah. a long, nothing road. out there. And we're yeah. the only truck down there. And we're just driving along. And all of a sudden, I am about had a heart attack. <laughs> I felt a shock wave on the roof of my truck. I thought my truck was going to break in half, and an F-18 had just flown about 10 feet over me in full burner, and I saw it, then, of course, right in my window, and then I come and I thought, so that's what you guys do out here, huh? And then I talked to some of my Blue Angel friends and other F-18 friends, and I find out that, yeah, well, it's kind of a common thing to be going real fast out in that part of the country some days. So was it uh, when I heard that on the radio, I thought, well, that guy is feeling his oats because he's just the fastest military jet, and good for him putting down all those little Piper Cubs. <laughs> but you know, bud, I think this is just not your day. <laughs> and uh, Well, as the story goes, it was you were reaching for the microphone, but Walt beat you to it? Well, Walt, my man, who I love dearly, uh, he, he came through. We became a crew at that moment. He... Uh, and I made it famous with that story. Walt and I recently just did a show together, and I said, here's the man 
who and and I love telling the story with Walt there mm-hmm. because he just he's so humble and he's so quiet usually. But uh, the greatest thrill I had as an addendum to this story, and it is a true story, right. is I spoke at the air traffic controllers meeting, big meeting they have once a year in Vegas last year. Okay. Fifteen hundred of these people there, absolutely wonderful. Now every guy in that audience knows that story, mm-hmm. and every guy in that audience said he better tell that story today. <laughs> so when I got up there, I did my whole talk. They gave me right. an hour and a half. And at the end, I said, we have some unfinished business here. And they just all roared. They wanted to hear it. So I, I told them the story. And what I learned from those guys is that in, in, re, in the real story, what really happened is the controller took an f- extra long time to come back with the numbers. Cause he, he, and I thought, well, why wouldn't it just be on your – and they said, well, you have to remember our, our scopes, they only go to 999 knots. So he was interpolating the scene you go from, you know, sector to sector. So he had to do some quick. That's why he would try to be so precise. 1,987. Yeah. It's like, oh, what, really? <laughs> they said he was probably plus or minus, you yeah. know, 50 knots. But they said that, that's why. And they just loved it. And, and guys came up to me and said, I was there. I was there the day I wasn't at the con- console, but the guy told me, I, he said, I was there that day. I remember that. And I go like, wow, thanks for validating. I mean, people <laughs> thought I made this story up. It's like, geez. I was skeptical. I'll be honest. But uh, but I, but hey. after I was buzzed in my truck and almost mm-hmm. killed, I could have been killed. Uh, and I thought that was the coolest thing. I got out of the truck and I'm just I'm just going, yes, sir, Bob. I would have done the same thing in my, my jet if I saw that lonely truck out there. Awesome. Uh, well, so it was a... One of the things I will say as on a serious note, never in my wildest mind did I ever imagine I'd be, 30 years later, keeping the history of the jet alive in the way that I do. Uh, and I, I like to take a pride in the fact that I do it in a, in a, in a non-technical way, in a, mm-hmm. in a humorous way, and in a, in a very informative way. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I love the jet, I have a unique set of slides, and I, I never imagined this would be what I would end up doing. Mm-hmm. But I was very proud when Walter Boyne, one of the curators of the Smithsonian Air Museum, who's written like 50 books on aviation and everything, uh, listed Walter and I as one of the top five SR-71 crews in history. And everyone said, how did they get on it? Because all the other four were record holders, the guys that set all the records, Mm -hmm. the early guys. Who should have been on that list? And we said, yeah, what what are we doing on that list? And he said... They have done more to keep the history of this jet alive in such a good way to the masses than any than anyone else that, that and, and through their books and their talks. And I thought, wow, somebody is he's a historian. He gets it. And gets I, it, I never yeah. imagined it wasn't my mission. But I felt I think I do a lot of I, I joke a lot and I, I uh, people think I don't take it seriously sometimes. But that to me was was probably one of the nicest honors of recognition you could ever, ever receive that someone appreciated what, what has happened. It just right. sort of happened. So I like to use humor in my talks and I, and I like to make it uh, palatable to the masses. I don't, they don't want too much technical talk, and, but the jet was magnificent in its technical uh, challenges. But um, I'm very proud of that. that I, I never imagined that would be my role or mm-hmm. something I would end up doing. I'm an introvert at heart. <laughs> I, don't, I never thought I'd be up on stage doing that. Um, so th- I, I was really honored that he that he uh, would say something like that. Well, you should be proud because you have an amazing story. I mean, you have your comeback story, which it's amazing just to survive, let alone fly, let alone astronaut, flight physical with no waivers. Yeah. And then you had these opportunities and these 
amazing experiences in the SRC and now you're sharing it. So I agree with him. And Well, on- and people have to know, like you started this whole show off with, is that I have a different perspective. So mm-hmm. it's not like, ooh, look at me. It's, wow, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And I'd love to share the story with you because I'm still in awe of the jet in what I got to do and the fact that you people want to even hear what I'm talking <laughs> about here. Well, this is a real thrill and honor for me because I remember building scale models of the SR-71 when we were kids, and I always had a hard time getting the vertical stabilizers to fit just right (laughs) because you had to glue them at an angle, but they would fall over if you let go, so you had to hold them. That's right. I built one too. Yeah, and then I got glue over on the wrong part, and I couldn't wipe it off. But (laughs) but man, just what an amazing aircraft, and what an amazing story, Brian. So thank you for taking the time with us today. And I could go on and on, but I want to be respectful of your time. As I warned you, though, we have two final questions. The first okay. is, what does the future hold for you? Well, I would like to write some other books. I now am deep into my nature photography, okay. uh, specifically birds. I am staying around flight okay. by observing uh, nature's pure flyers now. Uh, so I spend many hours out in the wilds uh, photographing birds in flight. And I will tell you, it's been extremely rewarding. I want to do some uh, books on that. I want to get my gallery finished. I'm still putting it together. And I'd just like to I have about three or four books in the works that I'd like to do, and they have nothing to do with the SR-71, really. Okay. Uh, but just uh, there's other chapters in life. Uh, and to me, it's my bird photography and uh, writing and uh, made some of the writings about aviation and things. Sure. But uh, flight is an amazing thing that man is uh, – Man doesn't really fly. He builds machines that Rides fly, along. and That's he sits right. in them. Uh, but the birds really, uh, every feather, a flight control surface. And uh, I, I just, so future-wise, um, I'd like to keep speaking uh, as, as I've been doing for a while anyway. And uh, it helps fund the gallery. Sure. Uh, but I really got into the outdoor photography and everything, and I would just... You know, as you get older and life goes on, you 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 get more at peace. So you just you just seek the peace and calm more mm-hmm. of life than all the things you did. You look back and say, I can't believe I was crazy enough to do all that <laughs> stuff. Uh, so I think I've gravitated more in this this uh, era of my life towards my writing and mm-hmm. uh, and my photography. Uh, and so I live in a nice small little town. I kind of hide out here. So you found me. Uh, you somehow uh, managed to. <laughs> well, uh, I've been me. bothering you for several months now. So I appreciate you not slamming the phone down on me. No, but not now you do have a good thing going here. And you certainly have a knack for the photography, as I can see just by looking around your studio here at some of your amazing images. So we will, the best we can, link to you on our website here. You are available for hire as a speaker, correct? I am. You yeah. know, I get calls all the time from small groups to real big conventions. I mm-hmm. can't do them all, but uh, and I don't do them for free. Right. But uh, they fly me all over. I'm, I'll be in uh, Columbus, Ohio next week okay. doing a big uh, convention. All right. uh, so it's kind of fun, yeah. and uh, you never know what group you can end up to. And what I think the most fun for me has been the deep uh, appreciation Middle America has had for this jet. They just yes. they still want to hear about it, and they still love it. And they go like, "Wow, I thought we were the only ones that really loved it <laughs> like that." But people, it's just very rewarding for me to see people embrace uh, that piece of history. Right. Not it's not about me. You know, there's this expression: um, you, you climb the mountain so you can see the world, not so the world can see you. Uh-huh. And and I kind of feel that way. It's like, wow, right. I, I can't believe we did all that stuff. And I'd love to share it. Uh, and I'm glad that people are receiving it so well. It's it's sure. it's rewarding. It's never about the money or the or the stuff. You know, uh, it, life is is just so much more than that. Connections so. and relationships. Good. 
Well, thank you very much for that. One final question. I don't even know if you have a call sign or what it is, but uh, <laughs> do you have a call sign? Can you share it? My call sign was Punchy. And, punchy, uh, all right. It's a long story, and I don't think we have time today. Oh, all right. All right. Well, you can be <laughs> our second guest to defer if you'd like. But, uh, Brian, this has just been an amazing childhood dream for me to fulfill, to be able to come and speak to a real sled driver about the SR-71. We loved it as kids. I still love it. And you have an amazing story, and you share it, and that is a gift to many. So I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your 20 years of service, and thanks for having me up here today. Oh, hey, it was my pleasure, really. I hope uh, hope your audience enjoys it. Once again, a big thank you to Brian Schull for coming on the show and realizing my childhood dream, as I said in the interview, to learn so much more about the SR-71 and who better to hear it from than him. If you want to see more of what Brian Scholl is up to, head on over to his website. It's gallery1publishing.com, and there you can check out his books and his artwork. And again, thanks for having me up, Brian. All right, well, it's just me this week, and we don't, once again, have time for listener questions, but we do want to make a couple announcements. One is that last week we had a new behind-the-scenes video air on our YouTube channel, Fighter Pilot Podcast Episode 7, Andy Mariner, call sign grand, returned to walk us through a video from our friends at Hornet Vids on shipboard FAA-18 pre-flight and startup procedures. So go check it out and let us know what you think. Also, our Patreon page will be getting a facelift and restructuring effective August 1st, 2019. So look for more details on that on the next episode and on Patreon itself. And of course, this is the point in the show where we always like to announce our new division leads, which is Ike, Clay Meisner, Dyslexi, Michael Friedman, and Jesse Rudd. We have a new strike lead, Joe Campbell, and a mission commander promoted himself to air boss, and that's Magpie. You've heard us refer to him before. Well, we want to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Well, we'll be back next time with another look at a fighter, and hopefully Sunshine will be back to help out with that. In the meantime, we're going to leave you with a new song our musician Jaime Lopez created for us, this being our first type of aircraft like the SR-71 on the show. So enjoy that, and we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line, 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget, share us with your network. Thanks for listening. We were uh, all in love with her. She was a teenager. She was the daughter in this TV show. She was in Cocktail with Tom Cruise. Yes. All right. She was so cute. As I'm proud my dad is an Air Force pilot, you know, and all this shit. Okay. Cindy Pickett was the mom. Craig T. Nelson. Oh.